0: It makes me wonder about like what mountain community tends to call type two fun which is you know type one fun is fun while you're having it and fun in hindsight type two fun is things that are horrible when it's happening <laughs> and then afterwards you're like that was that awesome. was great yeah can we <laughs> let's sign up for another marathon like oh man we should do these like every year and And, like, it kind of makes sense that maybe some of that type 2 enjoyment is the, like, I enjoy knowing that I can actually get through this, even though it kind of feels like suffering.
1: That was Jim Harris. Before sustaining a spine injury at the end of 2014, Jim made his living from hard days in the mountains. After six years of teaching wilderness mountaineering courses, Jim began creating content in photo, video, and written form for clients like National Geographic, Camp 4 Collective, and Powder Magazine, to name a few. That is, until he was paralyzed while snow-kiting in Patagonia. It took over a week for Jim to reach definitive care in the States, where five of his nine broken vertebrae were fused. After his spine fusion, he began to wiggle a toe. Within a few months, muscles in both legs began firing. And in the four years since that accident, Jim transitioned from wheelchair to walker to cane and continues to challenge the limitations of his disability. He is now mountain biking and backcountry skiing at a level most able-bodied individuals would only ever dream of. Jim shares a lot of knowledge in this episode, from getting into flow state, managing expectations around goals, using creativity to fuel your sense of adventure, and creating beliefs that can lead you to success. Be sure to stick around to the end of this one. It's really good, and one of our favorite episodes to date. With no further ado, here's Jim Harris. Listening to the
2: Balance Pursuits podcast. I'm Jen Hudak, and I'm Christy Leskinen, extreme sports athletes, television personalities, fire starters, and all-around badasses. Each episode, we're bringing you uplifting
1: conversations with thought leaders in sports, business, and entertainment who've cultivated
2: a life they love. We believe that life begins when you say goodbye to your comfort zone and face your biggest fears. Are you ready to learn how to live life
1: confidently and realize your true potential? Let's go. Well, hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us on the Balanced Pursuits podcast.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I'm super excited to talk to you. I was geeking out earlier watching you do the little carvings on your prints, like for the, I don't even know the right terminology. It's a print.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Relief printmaking is the the full, the full name.
1: Ooh, it's mesmerizing.
0: It's pretty fun to do, but it's, um, it's cool posting those to the internet and seeing how other people also like appreciate watching that. I feel like it's one of those things where maybe it's just kind of dorky to have a level of appreciation for that. <laughs> but so then there's something validating, and you're like, oh, it turns out even people who know nothing about this are like, that's kind of satisfying to watch.
2: Yeah, totally I, fascinating. I can remember doing one in high school art class. I loved it. It's so How cool, it? all the wood carving tools. And then I saw yours, and I'm like, oh, wow, this is next level. <laughs> So prior to your injury,
1: you were working as a ski photographer and a writer. And I guess what I'm curious about is how professionally, what is your life looking like now?
0: Yeah. So I'm working as a, I do some illustration work and I am a professional athlete with Adidas Terex. Um, and I kind of have the hodgepodge of projects, a little bit of video production and um, some marketing work and some um, Instagram influencing. Uh, and I t- continue to be really involved in the adaptive, um, adaptive sport community. Uh, I just spent about two months down in Texas training with a group called Adaptive Training Foundation in Dallas. And that was a really cool experience.
1: I think I saw some video footage from that. And seeing you push yourself outside of your comfort zone and current ability levels was incredible. And I guess I'm really curious, like, it's been just over four years, am I correct, since your accident? Yeah, exactly. And... What was that? I mean, you in the, uh, when we asked you to send over a little bio, you included this quote um, where you say, I feel lucky that the doctor never told me I'd never walk again. There wasn't much reason to think I would, and I might have believed him. And that just really struck me because it's basically like you acknowledging that part of your recovery and possibly a large part of your recovery has come down to simply a belief that you can always do a little more tomorrow. Can you share a little bit about that mindset and if that was there from the beginning or something that you developed?
0: Yeah, that was something that was there from the beginning. And it's really fascinating to kind of hold that at arm's length and look back at it. That if I scroll back far enough in my social media posts, I was like, high out of my mind on drip morphine in this little South American (laughs) hospital where I have very few memories of that week. Like I, that time feels so compressed in, in my recollection, but then I can look back and look at things that I wrote or emails I sent. And I was like fairly articulate, all things considered. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't really remember writing them. But one of the things I wrote was like about what a beautiful thing it was going to be to learn to walk and ski again. And there was definitely no one, telling me that that was any part of the prognosis. Um, but I think kind of in the absence of a prognosis in South America, I sort of just made up my own, like in the absence of an expert opinion. I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to aim high here, I guess. And then it's also been really, um, I felt like really driven to find some role models kind of early on uh, where there, there aren't that there's so much variability with nerve injuries and in the outcomes mm-hmm. and how much people recover. but certainly I'm not the only person who's got a really in- incredible recovery story. And um you know, I someone one of the person who reached out to me was uh Ryan Dunfee who stood do a bunch of marketing and social media for Teton gravity. And I'd ridden mountain bikes with Ryan a handful of times and noticed that he has like a, the teeniest bit of a limp, but I'd never thought to ask about it and it sure didn't slow him down on a mountain bike. Mm -hmm. And he's like, Oh yeah, I broke my back 10 years ago and was paralyzed. And now, and and so there's like these kind of like few and far between instances of, of of people have had these really dramatic recoveries. I think I kind of sought that out as a, it's sort of a beacon of hope for myself.
1: And Sorry, Christy, I'm just running with this because I have so many million questions. <laughs> but how do you manage expectations or what would you say to someone who who is in a similar situation and they want to look to someone like you who has made this incredible recovery, but like you said, there's so much variability in nerve injuries that you can't always, you know... I don't know. I, it just seems like a challenge.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, one, I, I've wondered a lot about the circumstances of my recovery of like, what has made my outcome so much better? Like what portion of that is chance or luck or, you know, grace of God or whatever we want to add that up to versus like, what else can other people replicate? Like how much of this is teachable or, um, what set what were the conditions that kind of allowed this recovery and i think one of the factors that's been huge for me is sort of the some of the mindset tools that i had learned in the mountains that i think are probably really common to the three of us and probably lots of listeners who have spent a lot of time doing uh outdoor activities and mountain sports and like around expectations and things one of those is this idea of having a big overarching goal but that that goal that is is maybe too big to like focus on really very much the time. And it's almost like, I think of it more of like a compass direction mm-hmm. of like we're heading that direction. But if my expectation is that I'm going to hit right in the very center of this bullseye, I'm might be disappointed. So maybe it makes a better set, like more sense to just aim in the direction of the bullseye. And I can refine that aim as I get closer.
2: It seems like managing hope versus expectation. Like you need to have hope always, but but you you can't have a lot of expectations when you're in something like that because you don't know. You can only work as hard as you can work and take it day by day.
0: Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, it seems like so much of kind of like life satisfaction is about having your expectation line up with what actually occurs in life. And the more aligned those are, the more content people feel and the the bigger the gap is between those two the more we feel you know this weird disconnect and unhappiness and like there should be something else or something more go ahead
2: i think that's easier to measure in injuries that are kind of cut and dry like uh, spinal cord injuries are are so kind of different person to person but i have seen Lots of friends suffer injuries that are similar. Um, I've had a couple friends that have shattered both their ankles. And, you know, I had one friend in someone like Tanner Hall who came back and won X Games the very next year. And then I had another friend that had a similar injury and she was still using a, a disabled parking pass years later. So I you know, there, there, there is really something to that determination and working hard, but with spinal cord injuries, it's got to be so much harder to manage.
0: Yeah. There's definitely no tidy, tidy answer. Like, Oh, if you only want it badly enough, right. <laughs> because then like everyone would walk again. Um, so it seemed, it would feel like really patronizing advice to be like, Oh, I just wanted it more than everybody else. That's not, I don't think that's true at all. I do think there's things like, around expectation and and goal setting, like the the ability to take a really large goal and chunk that down into smaller, more tangible goals, which I know you two are both experts at Mm -hmm. because that is how you, every single trick or climbing up the rung of competitive skiing is, is like, all right, well, I'm not trying to win a gold medal today. I'm just trying to like add in this grab to this trick that I can already do or to parse down goals into things that are like little smaller bite-sized chunks you're like okay i don't know if i can win x games but i can i can figure out this grab this week right and then you'd do that a thousand times and that's what leads to you know a podium finish
1: exactly so i mean one of the things that you kind of hit on is that your time in the mountains prior to this injury in many ways served you in your recovery. And one of the missions of this podcast is really to encourage people to get out and try new things because we believe strongly that there are so many lessons to learn and not only lessons to learn, but just leads to a more fulfilling life. And I'm wondering if we can kind of go back a little bit before your injury to... To talk about what drew you to the mountains in the first place and led you to your career as a photographer.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a really fun question. Like, I think it's hard to sum up in a sentence what draws someone to the mountains or what drew me to the mountains. I think this idea of having a real, uh, these kind of unscripted adventures really appealed to me a lot, um, especially kind of in, through adolescence when I was kind of like end of through high school and into college where this idea of kind of autonomy, I feel like it was probably extra important to all of us around that age and this idea that I could go out and kind of go anywhere I wanted and that any successes, like, you know, getting to the top of the peak that we're trying to climb, that you get like pretty much all the credit for that. And that also you, get these immediate consequences for like, Oh, you forgot your raincoat. Like hmm, now it's raining and that's too bad. Like <laughs> I bet you won't do that next time. And so that immediate con those immediate consequences, I feel like can be really, they're just kind of like a f- really fulfilling thing. And I think probably the scheme that all, that all three of us do is a good example of like, Oh, if I make the right choice then I get rewarded by this really fun feeling, if I make the wrong choice, then I'm like tomahawking and, there's a lot of it, a lot of incentive to pay very close attention to what you're doing so it forces this really immediate attention that creates these flow experiences that then feel really wonderful and then we want more and more of um and so i think it seems like there's this word that i like called autotelic and so autotelic are, are activities that we do because they're like in, intrinsically rewarding and so autotelic stuff is like i had fun doing this i want to do more of that and um time spent outside is is really feels that way very deeply to me.
1: Yeah. Each of these outdoor adventures that all of us really enjoy and like to go on in many ways are kind of like this microcosm of life, you know, where, like you said earlier, you set that goal or that summit as your compass and your general direction, but the path there is often meandering
0: it's, yeah, that's the expectation stuff comes in, right? Because if you expect it to be a linear A to B, A to B progression, it's going to be more difficult. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who is um, is a really strong climber, and I was asking her if she thought there was a difference between kind of like different rock climber personality types. Mm-hmm. And I think I see this in skiing too, between the people who are um, maybe a little bit more, people who find the most enjoyment in like this kind of martial arts style control and mastery of themselves and their movement versus people who enjoy the chaos in interacting with this like dynamic situation, this dynamic medium that's a little bit more like big mountain skiing or whitewater paddling versus things that are more acrobatic and like slope style skiing or, bouldering and sport climbing versus like first descents on crumbly desert towers where there's like all this unknown and adventure versus like trying to eliminate as many of those variables as possible to have to really just be able to focus on your own, the meticulousness of your own movements.
1: That's so interesting. And I think really true because I mean, I was obviously competed in half pipe for a long time and every run was like so planned out. And while things would go wrong and I would have to adapt, like I always had a really kind of clear picture of what was happening. And I found as I've gotten more into backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering that I don't do well when I think I'm going out for like an easy day and then it turns into a really hard day. But if I go out setting an expectation that I'm basically going to be suffering and miserable for like the first six hours and then I'm going to have fun skiing, (laughs) like I can handle that. But working on not creating an expectation that you're going to be suffering and just being and just letting the experience
2: unfold, that is still, it's a really big challenge for me still.
0: Mm, yeah.
2: It's about enjoying that suffering though, Jen, you're not putting yourself through the suffering. You're, you're, you're putting yourself through hard work because you, you know what goal you have set in mind. You want to get to the top of that peak.
1: You're right. But the difference there is because I'm like, okay, now I know that it's going to be hard. So I'm going to enjoy the suffering versus if I did that exact same thing, but I went in Without the awareness of knowing that it was going to be hard, it would turn into suffering.
2: If you think you're going to set out for a 20 minute hike and it ends up being four hours, then <laughs> it's not quite as much fun,
1: right? But to Jim's point, like you, if you can just be in that place of, I don't know, in in the moment with it, like,
2: like I'm on an adventure. Let's see where it takes me. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's um, there's some interesting psychology around like food science stuff around learning to enjoy suffering about, uh, these questions of like, how do people like hot sauce? So- like, why do people like hot sauce? We have this like physiological reaction that like is to recoil. Huh. And yet we like through repetition, teach ourselves to enjoy this thing. And, um, what the people who study this think is that some part of the enjoyment is from like this disconnect of like your, body telling you that this is a dangerous thing, but then your head having a different perspective and being like having this kind of cognition that, you know what I'm doing is actually not unsafe and actually body just chill the F out. We're going to (laughs) be all right here. Like it's just hot sauce (laughs) and like learning, learning to enjoy this like little disconnect between the, this kind of like knee jerk fear that we feel. And then the mastery kind of of that response that we feel and they like the, Examples that I've read about are like involved, like, yeah, like hot sauce and blue cheese and things like that. Mm, but it yeah. seems like it transfers so tidily to like what we call type two fun or right. any kind of extreme sports acrobatics, you know, like hucking off of a cliff or sending it off of a jump of like every molecule in your body. is like, this is a terrible idea. I don't want to be up in the air. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then somehow it's like the funnest thing ever. But it makes me wonder about like what the mountain community tends to call type two fun, which is, you know, type one fun is fun while you're having it and fun in hindsight. Type two fun is things that are horrible when it's happening. <laughs> and then afterwards, you're like, that was, that awesome. was great. Yeah, can we <laughs> let's sign up for another marathon. Like, oh, man, we should do these like every year. Yeah. And and like that it, it kind of makes sense that maybe some of that type 2 enjoyment is the like i enjoy knowing that i can actually get through this even though it kind of feels like suffering
2: i i feel i feel like maybe i've done more crazy things in my life because i'm not very experimental in the food world when you said blue cheese i instantly recoiled <laughs> i heard that <laughs> <laughs> oh no Yeah. You know, you touched on flow state and we talk about that a little bit. And I think that's something that has become really well known in kind of the sports and outdoor world, but hasn't really seeped into the psyche of kind of the general population. And I think it's a really interesting topic that can help a lot of people actually, if if you can figure out what can get you into that flow state. You know, flow state is basically when you're doing something that causes you to focus only on what you're doing. And it, it becomes meditative and kind of, uh, relaxing, you know, people find it when they're painting or when they're hiking or when they're skiing, you know, or when probably when they're taking care of their children, because they're just, they're just doing what needs to be done. And they, the, your mind is clear because you're, you're fully in that moment. And I wondered Jim, if you could speak a little bit about that and maybe how that's helped your recovery.
0: Yeah, I think flow state is such a fascinating thing because it's something that um the three of us and a lot of listeners to this podcast have all all pursued. Um and that's actually where I picked up the, the word autotelic is from this psychologist and writer named this Hungarian uh guy who immigrated to the United States. His name is Mihai, Shiksent Mihai, and he wrote a book called Flow, the Psychology of Optimum Performance. And so he had this really fascinating psychology career where so much, psych is focused on um, brains that aren't functioning well. They're focused on pathology. And here's this guy who like spent his entire career studying really high performing brains. Like he just spent decades interviewing Nobel laureates and people who um, seem to be doing the very best at life, and figuring out what was going out, going working so well for them. Um, and so he wrote this. One of his books is called "Flow: The The, the Psychology of uh, Optimal Experience," and he's trying to break down, like, how do we get into these really immersive, focused sort of attention that feels really meditative. And uh, I think it's such like a sen- like a feeling that everybody can relate to, but definitely the action sports world. I mean, I feel like action sports maybe triggers some deeper levels of flow than something that's a little, that seems to me more superficial, like watching a movie or reading a book where like, yeah, you're immersed in it. Yeah. You kind of lose track of time. It has some of these markers of being a flow state, but also it doesn't feel rewarding and invigorating and the same way as, um, something like skiing does.
1: Yeah, I think there's a a requirement to to get into flow of utilizing a skill set and utilizing that skill set kind of on that threshold of what is possible for you in that moment where it's challenging enough but not too challenging and and then, of course, something that you love and enjoy doing. So Mm
0: -hmm. based
1: on that, Jim, have you seen a difference in what it took – you to get into flow prior to your accident and post-injury?
0: Yeah, you know, there was like, I think my understanding of that way of experiencing the world, that kind of flow state experiences in my mind were so tightly linked to things like skiing that after I got hurt, I was like, oh man, maybe that's not going to be part of my life anymore, that, that skiing skiing was fulfilling maybe a lot of roles in my life. Like not just, it was like income and social scene and sense of validation and identity. And there was a whole lot of things that were all coming from like this one activity that without that, it was a really big vacuum to fill and or continues to be, I guess. Um, and, and part of that is like this experience of kind of like unity with the universe. when you have this like kind of when action and awareness merge and like you're doing a thing without, thinking about a thing, you know, it's like, um, skiing through trees as a, as something that I feel like I've just this winter kind of like gotten back to the point where I can make some moderate speed turns through some low angle aspens. And it's such a fun feeling to like, not be thinking about whether I'm going to go left or right. And it just like the skis are just going and I'm just moving. And, and, uh, one interesting thing about flow state is that it, releases a ton of neurotransmitters There's these chemicals that our brain uses to function that our nervous system uses to function and we get really high doses of them in flow state which mm-hmm. is probably a big part of the reason that feels so good we're getting all this dopamine and norepinephrine and and acetylcholine and acetylcholine all these all these neurotransmitters that um, that make us feel good that are like literally the same reason that addictive drugs are addictive is because they also Dose our nervous systems with those same neurotransmitters and it's really interesting to kind of look at flow state from from that perspective from that kind of chemical angle because some of those same neurotransmitters are known to science to help form new nerve pathways and mm. some of the brain research is showing that in flow state people are you know getting four or five or seven times the amount of kind of their, of their base level amount of these neurotransmitters kind of dumped into their brains, flooded into their brains all at once. And that is part of the reason these peak experiences feel so good. But then also maybe part of the reason that I've had this recovery is because I had more practice getting into that than many people do. And I was able to kind of find my way back there after getting hurt. Like, I feel like there was maybe the better part of two months where I can't remember having any flow state experiences. And then as I got more comfortable with like wheelchair use, part of the hospital curriculum was an hour a day of wheelchair class, which was like obstacle course on wheelchairs. It was like learn, learn how to wheelie learn how to like go up and down stairs, learn how to wheelie through gravel and snow and over speed bumps and how to like roll over, Railroad tracks and like all these like wheelchair kind of stunts, and at some point, all of a sudden, it was like realizing these like one hour classes were like the fastest hour of the day, hmm. and it's like, oh, maybe this isn't something that was like intrinsically linked to skiing. Maybe it was just like the way that skiing made me feel, and I really like feeling this thing. And there's other gateways to to this experience
1: that just gave me full body chills. I just have to say that. And Christy, you can continue. <laughs>
2: No, I just learn learning new skills. I actually think you can find flow state in something for a while, and then it, it kind of ceases to happen because it becomes such a no brainer. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I think learning new things is, is it, it it requires your entire brain to focus. One of the ways this can relate, kind of to the maybe more of the greater population that hasn't done kind of these adventurous things in their life, is that you know, people find it really difficult to go to the gym because it's not that much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, the studies that I found really fascinating was they, they did some testing with the U.S. team a few years ago and they found that, you know, in the fall they have all these trainers and they're in the gym and they're doing squats and um, they're working really hard and they did fitness testing and obviously they're all, they're all quite strong. Then they go through their entire season of just kind of snowboarding and skiing, and they do fitness, fitness testing again, and they're much stronger. Now, they they haven't trained all year. They haven't been in the gym. But what they found was that when you're out on the mountain and you're enjoying yourself, you'll put yourself through much more pain and and you'll work much harder. So these athletes are, are far stronger doing, doing something that they found that they enjoy. And so that's what I would say to people is, you know, it doesn't fitness doesn't have to be going to the gym. It can be kind of doing anything. Just get outside, find something that you like doing, and you'll become fitter than you've ever thought you could.
0: Yeah, I that resonates a lot with me. I feel like I've spent a lot of time walking on the mountains, and man, it was always really hard to discipline myself to go to the gym, even though I like would. Find great reward when I do it. Like one in two thousand nine or ten, I signed up Pip Hunt and had like a yes dryland training <laughs> in the fall. And Don't work out like, with Pip. That was, <laughs> oh, that was like my introduction to CrossFit back in Salt Lake <laughs> back in the day. And my start to the ski season was an Antarctica trip in early November that year. After like two months of being in the gym a couple of days a week, and I was like breaking trail for a group of pro skiers. And it was like, and, and it was like, I think I'm the, like the one who is most in ski shape of anyone in this group. And I was definitely not expecting that. And I pretty much attributed all that to Pitt, but did I like, I think I continued on through like January, but man, it was despite that great reward, like it's really freaking hard to get it together to go to the gym <laughs> a couple days a week.
2: Well, and working out with friends is actually a step in the right direction yeah, totally. to enjoying yourself. Totally.
0: Yeah, that is. I mean, that's how I keep myself consistent now is kind of having like some social some social obligation or contract. Like, see you there at seven? Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you there. And like, oh, well, I can't flake out because someone's expecting me to be there.
1: Uh yeah, Christine and I have talked about that uh, quite a lot, that accountability partner cuz I mean, I'm the same way and uh my husband and I get to play that role um for each other which is pretty cool. And he actually was just ski touring while I was gone, he had Pip and Brent over. They had a sleepover at our house and then went ski touring out our door while I was gone. I'm like, "You guys are jerks." <laughs> I want to come. <laughs>
0: It's hard to feel too sorry for you. Oh yeah, true that. Being a celebrity (laughs) in Aspen, it doesn't really sound that terrible. You're right. Um, You're right. It's not.
2: And she was hanging out with me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Life's pretty good. Oh man, totally FOMO, so real. But you're always missing out on something. So you should just immerse yourself where you are. Right. The whole point of our conversation today.
2: And we
0: hiked Highlands
2: Bowl. So yeah, nice. That was fun.
0: I have still never been up there. That is on my. (gasps) On my rehab to-do list. Yay. I think it's going to happen sometime soon. Yeah.
2: For our listeners, Highlands Bowl is a a hike to the top of uh, Aspen Highlands. And Aspen, it's kind of an iconic thing that it's like a rite of passage. If you go to Aspen, you have to do it. Yeah. The summit is at
1: 12,392 feet, as Christy and I learned <laughs> three days ago, two days ago.
2: The air is a little thin.
1: So to change gears just a little bit, and Chrissy mentioned this earlier that like, you know, painting and art can also kind of get you into that flow state. So besides being an incredible mountain man and athlete, uh, you also have this creative side, which you um, realized through photography and also through drawing and now printmaking. Um, Can you share what role uh, creativity has played in your life?
0: Yeah, I think, I think I think that probably extends like back to childhood. Maybe that's just like an innate personality thing. I feel like I've always kind of been drawn towards creativity, and for years I found a lot of that just in in backcountry skiing. There's so much um, opportunity to like use use some of these creative forces to figure out a kind of devise a safe way to get up something or to get back down, and how can we like outsmart the odds, and how can we go in the Wasatch where things are really busy. Like how can we go to a spot where other people haven't skied yet, but is also going to be a safe spot given the conditions and kind of this, the problem solving and sort of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like horizontal thinking of kind of bridging different ideas to find a solution. I feel like that, like skiing checked a lot of those boxes for me for, for quite a while. And you know, Jen, I think you and I first met, Around the time I started teaching avalanche classes, I remember you and John Spitzer and I being in an avalanche class together in like 2005.
1: Four. Uh, Wait, was, was it? it that
0: far back? No, maybe it must right. have been like 2000. I think I started teaching in 2009 or 2010. Okay, so it's still it was off like a decade off. I was way off. It was like, it was like a decade ago. <laughs>
2: I was like, wow, you were taking avi classes in 2005? You just started skiing half I did. You when I really moved to
1: Utah, my before? mom was like, you can move to Utah, but you have to take an avalanche class or you're not allowed to go skiing anywhere, even in the half-pipe. So I listened.
0: I do. <laughs> well, I do remember, Jen, that you brought half-pipe size ski poles that were <laughs> about mid-thigh height. And I think you maybe had a onesie on the entire That's time for a ski tour. Probably true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you look super steezy. I don't know if steezy is even a word.
1: Oh my God. It was a word then. I don't know if it is now.
0: (laughs) It's not, but I think that might've, that might've been around the pinnacle of of steezy being a a concept. Yes. Yeah. So I think, I I think, I don't know, maybe that creativity just comes out in different ways. And I think backcountry skiing is one way to like, there's a lot of opportunity and I imagine there's probably that sense for for park and pipe and slope style skiers too. that you are like, I mean, it seems like there must be a ton of that of like, how can I do this plus one more rotation or plus one more whatever? How can I do this in a way that nobody else has done it before?
1: Yeah, that was largely what drew me. Uh, I was started out competing in moguls and largely what drew me to half pipe, especially at the time, because it was all uncharted territory, uh, back in 2002, um, was that, that element of really just being able to kind of look at what exists and then, you know, add on to it and recreate it and find a new way to, um, really just, it was like full expression is what it felt like. And I enjoyed that freedom.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. It's like the way a musician would describe like riffing with, with a melody or something to develop something totally new.
2: Yeah. Also, I feel like Jen, as we were getting into, freestyle skiing like a lot of the stuff hadn't been done before and so it was also an exploration whereas you know just a short like 10 years later that's changed now it's like kind of the a lot of the uh possibilities have have been um explored and so i i wonder if young girls today are getting a different experience like a, a vastly different experience than we had
1: yeah, very possibly. I wonder too if like the, the personalities that are drawn into the sport are also starting to shift a little bit.
0: I would I would imagine so. Yeah. I mean it kind of in keeping with my like speculative theory about there being differences in personalities between um you know park and pipe skiers and backcountry skiers or at least being some different mindsets, if not like different Yeah personalities and kind of similarly with bouldering and trad climbing being at different ends of a spectrum and it seems like as park and pipe skiing continues to get more and more gymnastic that it's gonna continue to be more and more biased into the realm of people who are just absolutely literally ninja (laughs) body movement skills yeah
2: And I think as, as the possibilities have been defined, it becomes, it becomes less creative. It becomes more kind of like just following in someone else's footsteps and you know, you know exactly what is possible
0: Yeah, um,
2: where we actually didn't.
0: Well, there's like maybe those personalities who helped open the doors to, um, to like in the skiing world, people who have, who tend to go big, but maybe don't have the best style, but they have (laughs) the most aptitude for like controlling their own hesitation and seeing a possibility that nobody else could see and sending the hundred foot gap that nobody thought was possible. And then all of a sudden it is possible and suddenly a lot of people can do it. And then the people who come along after that, start refining it and getting more acrobatic. And the people who come after that, like some at some point level it's, it's like, all about the artistry and it's no longer like speculative like can he clear this can she clear it and make it to the landing like of course
2: (laughs) yeah like yeah been there done that jim can you tell us a little bit about your partnership with adidas and how that came about and and kind of what that (laughs) what that i mean that's something that even jen and i could aspire to so can you tell us a little bit about that
0: yeah there was like um no real manifesting that on my part <laughs> like literally i got an email in my inbox of like hey we have an offer for you let's talk that was so vague that i had ignored the initial one like wrote it off as some kind of spam like yeah sure you're just gonna wire me some money and i'm gonna like send a check to nigerian prince yeah i got it um it didn't mention adidas at all but it was like this kind of it was like this very vague offer for like we have an attractive offer for you. Call us, please. And I was like Oh uh, wow. I ignore uh, all, all right. of them. Do you tell yeah. me I should start following I, and, up? <laughs> but then, then there was a follow-up and it was like, no, really. Like we represent Adidas and we'd really like to talk with you. When are you free? We're on like European time and when, when's when's gonna work when we'll work to talk. And I was like, oh, um. Now. Yeah, let's find the time. <laughs> <laughs> I could be up at three in the morning. Let's talk. Um and so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I had, it's, it's, there's like some real deep irony here for me in that I don't never, never like saw myself as, as a professional athlete before I got hurt. Though in hindsight, I feel like I was, um, like making, getting hired for jobs cause I could usually keep up with them, um, with the people who were being paid to be athletes. But I don't know. I, was, I feel like I was being behind the camera fit better with my personality and i just that was not really part of my like like i didn't see myself as a pro athlete so to be post spine injury to kind of be like cripple status and then getting this opportunity was like really you guys do know my backstory right (laughs) like okay just checking because i'm not gonna be breaking any kind of speed like you know speed records or any kind of physical records at all but i think in our day of social media influencing and things that there's something that there's really like when I get hired for photo stuff, what came up time and time again is marketing departments being like, Oh, well we hired you because we really like your, the authenticity that you convey. And that always made me really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because I was like, I don't know how to like be authentic. deliver authenticity <laughs> in a in a photo like I'm not sure exactly like can you describe what it is that you're seeing here because I can try and recreate something that I've done before if it's really going to work for you and I want to like make these clients happy but I'm not sure what
2: They're describing you. They want you because you are authentic. Right? Without without trying to be. And
1: but with the authentic piece authenticity is because it's like such a buzzword now in the marketing space, right? Everyone wants to be authentic, but it's like, as soon as you name it and then try to be it, you are no longer it. So I just think it's like such a bizarre thing to like approach someone and like, yeah, I mean, it, it would be a weird, I would feel equally weird. Like, okay, well now that you've said that, I don't know how to be authentic. Cause like Christy said, you were just being you.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like there is some, there's some level of like, maybe it's some combination of like trying hard, but without being too (laughs) cocky about it. I don't know.
1: Maybe it's the vulnerability thing, Jim, that you mentioned like when I reached out and I wanted to make sure that we were mindful and respectful of your injury because it's a part of your life, but it's not entirely who you are. And your response was, um, one of the outcomes of being so helpless is that vulnerability stopped feeling very vulnerable. And maybe when people talk about authenticity, there is a piece of that where it's this vulnerability like and humility where you're just, you show up and you are who you are and you're living each day for that moment in that day.
0: Yeah, I think, but that's what a hard thing to cultivate. <laughs> <laughs> what a weird thing to try and commodify. For the marketing <laughs> Totally.
2: Team. Totally. I think one of the really interesting things that, uh, one of the outcomes of social media is that, uh, you know, companies for a long time just thought like they need to support the biggest and the baddest and the best and the best looking. And they're now finding through social media and the influence that people are, are building is that there's, there's a lot of space for other inspirational stories and there's a lot of things that inspire people and you're certainly one of them.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, no, that seems like that's been, uh, a big shift in the outdoor action sports marketing world in the time that I've been was kind of, I feel like I was maybe around the, around eight and 10 years ago as Instagram kind of rose to popularity and all of a sudden it became like Facebook went from being just friends with like the hundred people you were actually friends with in real life to having hundreds or thousands of friends who were like people that no one had met. Or that <laughs> that we weren't firsthand connected with and then all of a sudden there were always you know like a whole new category of of pro athletes who were had like this social media influence and I remember all the backlash again from the people who were mm-hmm. had climbed up fought their way up the ladder <sighs> through p- podiums and ruining ruining joints and tendons and all of a sudden somebody who comes along who has not paid any of those dues and is just social media popular and they're getting offered contracts and it felt so unfair yeah to a lot of people i think and but i think i was probably somewhere in that category of like in at least in the photo world of somebody who like i the only fam film camera i ever owned was my dad's old, like, 1970s Nikromat camera that I learned to shoot on in high school. And by the time I got into photography, right, as, as digital SLRs started to get decent, mm-hmm. and um, there was a lot of resentment in the photo world yeah. from people who were like, we couldn't just go fire off 100 pictures and hope to get one good one. Like, you can't do it the way you guys are doing it now, this, like, spray-and-pray style of photography that you can just be a total amateur and you're willing to work for not very much and you're taking all the jobs. I feel like I was a beneficiary of that change, that shift in technology that really radically changed the photo scene. It really radically changed the pro who gets paid to go do things outside scene. And it went from being all the people who, people who either ended up on podiums or the people who went the biggest. And all of a sudden Sending it huge off of a thing seemed like a smaller and smaller piece of what the magazines were showing and what movies were showing and what the marketing departments cared about.
2: Because it's less and less aspirational. I look at our sport, and as it gets crazier and crazier, fewer and fewer people actually think, like, hey, I want to do
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that. yeah. I, that trip that I got hurt on was pretty far out there in terms of its relatability for the average people. And, and my friend Forrest and I had spent a long time working on this um, grant proposal to go on this ski traverse and pack raft trip down the length of the Patagonia ice cap. And as part of that, we had bought snow kites to help tow us and our pile of gear across like 400 miles of ice cap in the southern tip of South America. And so it was while playing around these snow kites in a grassy field just before departing on this trip that I... I broke nine vertebrae and paralyzed myself. But that trip was like going into it. Like, we had this a bunch of grant money for this trip. There was like no magazine interest because it was just too far out there beyond the norm. But there was some part of like this, this like a ratcheting of risk taking, this ratcheting of skill sets with like, oh, I tried doing this hard thing that I thought would be like the hardest I could possibly do. And when I actually tried it, it turned out to be like pretty much okay. And it went a lot smoother than i thought it would and now i want to go try this thing that seems a notch harder and then kind of like rinse repeat and all of a sudden you're at the x games or you're being paid a bunch of money to go on like a 400 mile suffer fest in a really remote place with like skis and boats at the same time that's wild but yeah there, there is like this level of unrelatability where like there was like no ski magazine was gonna like run a article about that it was just too fringe
1: right
0: it it, it stopped being relatable I think
1: yeah and I mean when you were saying previously that like you didn't view yourself as a professional athlete and you were on you were behind the the lens and now you have this partnership with Adidas as an athlete like when I look at you and largely the mindset like how you have approached recovery. I mean, that is exactly how an athlete, the, any of the best athletes in the world are going to approach their sport and, and their training is always trying to find that next level of possible. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, I find it really fitting and I think it's, it's, it's definitely an honor for you, but it's a well-deserved honor. And I think like Christy was touching on earlier, just this relatability piece It is relatable. Even if people, you know, I think when, when your average Joe looks at someone like you who has been through this, um, life, potentially life altering injury, and I'm sure it's life altering in some ways, but you've still returned to these things and it's the power of your mind in many ways that, that got you there. I think that's relatable. They can say, Oh, okay. Like I can, I can look inward and I can, choose something that brings me happiness and that's a little outside my comfort zone and I
2: can just work toward it.
0: Thanks. That's that's like, there was a big compliment in there. I think. Thank you. <laughs> I hope so.
2: <laughs> I think it's really important for people to be reminded of the power of determination. And I think you really embody that.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's, thank you. Like, I feel like <laughs> there's like, there's that, there is a, I think a huge piece of by recovery of a lot of nerve recoveries has to do with attention and how we, to what level we're able to control it or how we, how we steer that. Like I think of it, I think of like got flashlight beam as a good analogy for like how my attention works that I can like either kind of have this wide diffuse attention or maybe I can focus it in on something more specific and make a narrower focus, the flashlight beam down and see, a smaller piece, a smaller sli- slice of reality in sharper detail. And kind of how we modulate that seems like it's a huge factor for how we experience life and how it seems like really closely tied to brain and spine trauma rehab. But it's also such a tricky skill to like, like I don't know, like people who in the mindfulness and meditation community talk about monkey mind and like this this kind of... Mm-hmm unruly monkey that somehow part of us wants to do what it wants to do. And we make all these impulsive decisions and then try and rationalize them later for how they weren't actually that impulsive.
1: Um, Yeah. Monkey mind is a, is a challenge for all of us and largely, largely fear-based, largely resistant to change and growth and to do the Mm -hmm. things that you have done require that, that level of consciousness to be able to tease apart like, okay, yes, this change is uncomfortable, but in the long run, it's going to be better for me. And I think a lot of, a lot of us fall into that, that trap of making a a short-term decision, making a decision without thinking about the big picture implications of it.
0: Well, it's kind of overwhelming to like, think about the big picture implications all the time. <laughs> like, I think that's the, maybe that's what comes back to, like, I find it really overwhelming to like try and focus on a five-year plan and I can maybe have like some ideas about where I'd like to be in five years, but kind of comes back to like that gold setting and expectation of being like, oh, I think I want to aim that direction and now I want to not look that far towards the horizon. I'm just going to focus on like what I'm going to do today. Mm-hmm. I-, I have a question for you too. Like, <laughs> In talking about the relatability of my of my rehab, like I get told that I'm inspiring fairly often, and it's come to my awareness that like a lot of people in the disabled community really dislike being mm-hmm. called inspiring. But you must hear that a lot also. And what's your impression of that? And what do you think people mean when they say that? So to you?
1: this is actually really interesting. I um I actually do some work with a nonprofit organization called She Lift which aims to empower women with physical differences uh through outdoor adventure. And many of them are born with their limb difference, but some of them have had um, an accident that, you know, then results in a physical difference or disability. Um, and we actually talked about that in august one of the one of the women expressed that she had people coming up to her saying you're such an inspiration and she really she really resisted it and also expressed that feeling of like i don't i don't want to be called an inspiration mm-hmm. and in my opinion if you're an inspiration like that is <laughs> you actually don't get to control that. And it has nothing to do with you. It actually has to do with the other person <laughs> on the end who is being inspired. Right. And, and so I think the layer where it comes in, where you're like, Oh, I don't want to be an inspiration is like of feeling like, you know, I'm just living my life and, or, or, or thinking that it's kind of like patronizing or, you know, you're pretty good for whatever or and if you get caught up in that dialogue, then sure, it doesn't feel good to be told that you are an inspiration. Um, Christy and I got a lot of that feedback after Amazing Race, and I just took it to be like, people don't expect to see this. And that's okay. And if they are inspired and moved by it, and they're going to go and then take that inspiration and do something great, then that is a beautiful thing. Um it,
2: I personally find it to be an honor to be told that I'm an inspiration. But I... I think it's one of the greatest honors that anyone can ever bestow on yeah. you to tell you that you've inspired them. Yeah. But it is out of and our I control. Can understand when <laughs> <laughs> and you can understand even as a female athlete sometimes, uh, you know, when we're just doing something that we do every day, when, when somebody be- might say, oh, like, that's inspiring, you could feel mm-hmm. like... It's patronizing because oh, it's inspiring because you're doing it because you're a girl. Right. But no, in the end, in the end, like Jen said, you you can't control what people think is inspiring, and in the end, that word is just—it's uh, one of the best compliments that you can be paid. Yeah, yeah. I'm
0: I'm so glad you like hearing it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really like what you said too, Jen, about. Um, about it not being about you, I think that's a really good perspective. And I think that's like in the conversations I've had with people in the adaptive sports community about it. It seems what, what people dislike is that the person saying, the person giving the compliment, is that, it, that it, there's something that they're um, they're maybe not empathizing with a disabled person's perspective. But I don't think often the people who react to that compliment are empathizing with the compliment giver's right. perspective. It's like two people who are only seeing it from their own point of view. Right. And
1: Yeah. My question there would be, what does it feel like for you when when you are inspired by someone?
0: Mm, That's a good question. I mean, I think one of the part of the conversation I've had with other people is they're like, don't tell me I'm inspiring if you're not going to go and change any element of your life whatsoever. And so then it's gets into this like <laughs> heady discussion of like, okay, well, how, like, does a mindset change count? And like, if yes, then like how perceptible does that have to be before it's a quote unquote authentic compliment versus something that's like, just like the equivalent of saying, Oh man, I pity you, but I know I can't say that. So I'm just going to say this other thing. Mm. Um, Interesting. but you know, I think the way I tend to hear it is, is like what you, but you two are, verbalizing of like this people like, you know, like, like with amazing race that were like, I've never been in your situation, but I hope if I ever was that I would handle it as well as right. you seem to have handled it. And I think that's maybe what people mean a lot of times.
1: I think that there's a large element of that. Like, absolutely. Because a lot of people, they, they couldn't imagine being paralyzed or losing a limb and and having going through something you know but i I'd, I'd try in those and i work on this in other areas of my life like giving people the benefit of the doubt if someone says something that is is that that's nice like they're probably genuinely trying to be nice and not patronizing and not an asshole <laughs> um mm-hmm. but sometimes if you're yeah too caught up in your own space and self, like Christy mentioned earlier, getting caught up and, you know, it happens on the mountain bike trail in park city all the time. Everyone is like the most, they're like all Lance Armstrong. And, you know, if someone's coming up behind me on the trail and I pull over and, you know, a guy rides by and he's like, nice job ladies. If I'm like riding with girls and it's like, you know, I, it's easy for me to be like, what the hell like you're passing me and telling me good job like you couldn't possibly mean that but like but what if he does mean it you know like why am I sitting there getting angry at this dude for trying to give me a compliment because I'm in my own head thinking that I'm not enough because he's passing me on a bike like that's my own issue
0: <laughs> <laughs> This is like the, the elements of our competitive personalities coming out early. totally
2: totally Yeah, And I think a lot of people, when they give compliments to people in situations that they find difficult, it doesn't mean that it needs to inspire their life, but they find it inspiring how they've handled it. And I think that just brings you to the quote that, that kind of, you never know how strong you'll be until being strong is the only option. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, an idea that, that kind of ties in with this that has really fascinated me for the last year or two is like this the, the way that what's possible for things like spine injury rehab or what's possible in high performance sports, um, the way that shifts with perception. That, like, one example is like four minute mile of like, you know, running, it was I think, broken, maybe the 1940s or 1920s rather, other. And there was this barrier that had stood for all of human history. And, um, then once one person did it and it kind of became a concept that it could be done all of a sudden, like within a few years, lots of people could run four minute miles. And that there was something like that. It wasn't that it got easier to do four laps around a track at whatever that (laughs) is. Mach 12. (laughs) Yeah, Mach 12. um, It was like our perception of how difficult it got changed. And I feel like kind of maybe touching that a little bit when I was mentioning like looking for role models in the spine injury Mm -hmm. recovery world. And I feel like I've witnessed that firsthand where I am that inspiration for other people who are who other somebody else is told they'll never walk again. And they're like, Oh, but look at this guy, Jim did. So here's a counterpoint example. And then a year later, they're like, Oh yeah, I got rid of my wheelchair. I just walk with canes now. And I mean, so here in Carbondale, Colorado, um, there's, I moved here about three years ago and started training, uh, at a gym called ripple effect here in town. That's kind of like, um, Jim Jones, CrossFit style gym. And, the owner, Carolyn Parker, has taken excellent care of me and I've made tons and tons of progress working with her. And through the success that, that we had together, um, like about a year after my accident, a local school teacher was paralyzed in a creek kayaking accident. Um, and so then Nate and I got put in touch through his while he was in the hospital and then became friends. And then he started coming to Ripple Effect. And then about a year after that, one of his uh, students, one of his, his high school students got paralyzed in a big mountain ski comp um, and has also started coming to this gym. And so now there's this group of people, including somebody who was paralyzed in a mountain bike accident like five or six years ago, a couple of years before mm-hmm. my accident, who um, hadn't really had any recovery at all. And all of a sudden, there's four of us in the same room, and people are like, people who are like told they're never going to move again, all of a sudden their legs start moving and like, well, you're definitely never going to walk. Okay. Well you're not going to walk very far though. And it's amazing how that, like, I don't think that I don't want to sound like that I'm attributing that to me or my presence or something like that. But I think there's some, it's like maybe more like the idea of like what I represent the
1: possibility
0: that there's the possibility. There's something, there's something very viral and very po- about yes. that idea and like the Richard Dawkins way of talking about memes, like not the internet JPEGs, but like the like a unit of cultural information that can move from person to person and the way a virus moves from person to person. And that there seems to be like there's something yeah. viral about, that. And
1: I mean, you mentioned um, that with, yeah. when you, in the the quote that I read at the beginning of this podcast, when you were saying that you were thankful that a doctor never told you, you wouldn't be able to walk again, because for you, that allowed you to believe anything you wanted to believe and to preserve that belief that you could, you know, you focus on wiggling a toe and then getting some muscle back and just taking it as far as you could. And, and, and who knows where that came from, but some people don't have that. And then if they are given this visible example, like yourself, that there is something to believe in and a possibility on the horizon, um, it starts shifting that, that mindset. And really, I mean, I don't think always, I can't say, you're just going to will yourself back from a spine injury. That would be an extremely unfair thing to say. Um, but I think it's, it is having that, having that example and a community to be with to just just try every day to go that much further. It can open a whole new world.
0: Yeah, like there's yes, I, I I totally agree. Like there's a our brains are more powerful than I think. Our our current Western medicine understanding really really doesn't capture the whole picture. Maybe. For sure.
2: I think it's important for people to always focus on striving to be their best every day, whatever that means.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like, I guess for me that that idea is like, well, why would I want, what's the, what's the benefit of being my best? And that like being my best makes sense to me. If it means that I enjoy life more, if it means like my experience and perception of life is better and which like, it seems like it, (laughs) I guess, I guess probably all three of us obviously have some traits that are like, yeah, my life, I am going to experience life better or have a better experience if I really put effort into it.
1: And that I think is one of the benefits of not only being involved in the mountains, but in sports in general, because you do learn that when you show up to just try to be the best version of yourself, you usually enjoy yourself a little bit more.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think so. It does seem like that, that like, I don't know, it comes back to that. Um, some of those baselines for, for flow state that, you know, it's kind of the three baseline conditions are that you have to be involved in an activity that has a clear set of goals. So there's some like direction to the task that uh, you must have you have to have some clear and immediate feedback and action sports definitely have that. It's either like stomping <laughs> a landing or, crashing. Um, and so that really immediate feedback kind of helps, helps you adjust your performance, um, and kind of maintain the that flow state that you're in. Um, and then the third criteria is they kind of that there's got to be a balance between the perceived challenges and the perceived skills. So you have to be kind of at the edge of your comfort comfort zone you have to be pushing right up against that envelope but if you're too far outside of that comfort zone then it just is gonna be something like worry and anxiety that manifests not like this fun experience of flow state
2: jim thank you so much for joining us i think that is a great note to wrap on we would just like to ask you a few kind of rapid fire questions to end the podcast if that'd be all right
0: yeah that sounds great
2: Do you have a favorite quote or mantra you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: Actually, I have a great quote. So I worked for Outward Bound for years. Um, The guy who founded Outward Bound had a really unique childhood that would not be a short answer. But um, one of the things that he said that I found really impactful is your disability is your opportunity. Mm. Love it. And it's one of those difficult Zen things where you're like in my initial reaction is like, that's not true. <laughs> like my disability, is my disability. <laughs> like, um, and it's interesting as that changes with, I mean, I don't know if we would have had this conversation, this delightful last hour of chatting, if I hadn't had a horrible accident right. four years ago.
1: When or where do you find the most confidence in your life?
0: I think I find a lot of confidence kind of in those flow state experiences where I stop overanalyzing things. Um, I think I have a tendency to overthink stuff and to spend too much time trying to anticipate the future and that maybe being a little bit more present and a little more in the moment and just being letting go, whether that's in conversation or doing an activity, that I find a lot more confidence and enjoyment.
2: And one that we always ask, how do you find balance?
0: Oh, that continues to be a struggle for me. I'm probably not a great person <laughs> to ask about how to live a role. <laughs> I no. We love this answer. <laughs> I think i like feel like I'm have always gravitated to kind of doing things in big bites, which is doesn't lend itself towards a lot of balance. It tends to be like more like big. <laughs> On one hand, I think I work really well in a container that that is kind of like the where where it is like all in for like cool. I'm doing this project for a month, and this is what I'm going to work on all day every day. Um, but then that once that project is over, then then there tends to be like a void of like I don't know. It seems like a lot of my a lot of things in life have gravitated towards being like, and it's it's hard to find balance when you're like. I mean, I worked doing outdoor guiding stuff where you're like gone for a month at a time and then home for three weeks, and then gone for a month. And then photo, photo work was really similar where it's just like a ton of travel. And it's like either I'm going to be at home and on the computer 12 hours a day and not leave the house or I'm going to be out and like off the grid and outdoors and not interacting with technology. But I it.
2: think that is balance.
0: It is. It's just a sinkhole right. kind of one versus it's some big oscillations that yeah. um, can create issues in my own life and certainly create issues for people around me.
1: But such a valuable answer because honestly, I think a lot of people, they talk about balance and they want to have more balance in their life, but they think of it in terms of this, you know, like balance in the everyday. And, um, I really appreciate your answer because I think it helps to, to, break that down a little bit like that's not necessarily what leads to the most fulfillment and while yes these big oscillations can present other challenges staying in the status quo and having every day be exactly balanced is also like got its own host of challenges so thank you for your honesty
0: yeah that was not short <laughs> that's answer. okay it's, it's allowed <laughs> uh, those usually yeah. end up
1: being longer than we have always anticipate <laughs> thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day to talk with us, um, before we hang up, uh, where can people follow along with you as a person and your art and everything that you have going on?
0: Yeah, I can follow me on Instagram. It's probably where I'm most active and my Instagram account is perpetual weekend. And then I also started an art account not too long ago. That's, um, gorgeous underscore store that's where
1: you can get entranced by Uh, these mesmerizing block carving things that i'm still again forgetting the name of
0: (laughs) oh man well next time you're here you got to come and hang out at the studio and we can i it's a really fun kind of tactile thing to put these carved plates that are pretty i would love to so you should come and help out
1: well thank you jim have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll be in touch soon
0: Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for your time.
1: Our pleasure. Well, friends, that's a wrap. How amazing is Jim? Sustaining that kind of injury and never losing sight of what is possible is no easy feat. The quote Jim shared at the end is something that we could all benefit from exploring. Your disability is your opportunity. And while Jim acknowledges it almost sounds cliché, I mean, what other option is there? Self-pity? Anger? Regret? You can't fight reality. While all of these reactions are most certainly understandable, they don't lead you in the direction you want to go if you stay in them forever. There's a great book on this concept called The Obstacle is the Way. It's a quick yet impactful read about Stoic philosophy that ties nicely into this concept if you're interested in exploring it more. But until then, just consider this. How can you find opportunity in something that you often see as a disadvantage? Let us know at balancepursuits.com forward slash episodes forward slash Jim dash Harris. Thanks. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.
2: That's a wrap for this episode of the Balanced Pursuits Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, share, and give us a review on iTunes. Want to join the conversation? Connect with us at balancepursuits.com.
1: Or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Christy Leskinin and at Jen Hudak.